I'm definitely excited about everyone being able to uh, join us for our second lesson in our series on Lamentations. So this morning we'll be looking at chapter 2 of Lamentations. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we pray that over this next hour you would be honored and glorified just with our hearts and our focus upon your word. We pray that you would be changing our hearts, conforming us more to the image of your son. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So Lamentations chapter 2. Let me start by reading from Jeremiah chapter 19. I'm going to read a couple verses here. And God says, And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. With a prophetic ministry that spanned the reign of multiple kings, and after having a life full of abandonment, betrayal, persecution, all by the very people that he was seeking to minister to, how will Jeremiah respond after being a first-hand witness to the wrath of God being poured out on those who rejected him? How will he respond when the very words that he had repeatedly proclaimed that those people had repeatedly rejected when those words finally came to pass? How will he respond? So I know how my flesh would want to respond. (laughs) But the question I would ask is, how would you respond? How will you respond when you see from firsthand experience the wrath of God being poured out upon the ungodly and the unrighteous? And by the grace of God, we are not left in a position where we have to make our best guess or figure out what the best response should be. We actually are being able to be told by Lamentations chapter 2 that when you are a first-hand witness of the bitter judgment of God, how the godly man should respond. So applying this to us, this is going to be the theme that we see in Lamentations chapter 2. As you are the first-hand witness to the bitter judgment of God, you must respond in genuine but God-honoring ways. In Lamentations 2, it it provides us with three godly responses that we must exhibit if we are surrounded by the bitter judgment of sin against his enemies. We're going to... Lord willing, look at all three of these, but it's possible we may only get to the first two, um, 
But we're going to see that we must lament the condition of the lost. We're going to see that we must evangelize for their repentance. And finally, we're going to see that we must even lament our own affliction. So who remembers what does Lamentations teach us about God's character? This will go back to last week. If you want a hint, you can probably look at the top of your handout if you grabbed one. But what does Lamentations teach us about God's character, its theme? Look for bold. There you go. Say that out. Larry? Yeah, God is the sovereign judge. And we saw that last week. And as the sovereign judge, we see that God's character, it demands that you and I turn to him. And we saw this last week, and we're going to see the same thing repeated this week. Now, chapter 2 of Lamentations, it has a lot of similarities to chapter 1. Both chapters are examining God's bitter judgment of sin, but there are some differences. Chapter 1 was primarily a horizontal perspective of that judgment. It really examined the relationship that Israel had with those that were surrounding them. There was repeated references to its lovers, its neighbors, its friends, It was looking at the other nations that these nations had turned to, or that Jerusalem had turned to. And we saw the fact that these other relationships, they failed to comfort and revive the soul of the widow Zion. Now, in chapter 2, though, it's also looking at that bitter judgment of God's sin, uh, God's bitter judgment of a sin, but it's primarily a vertical perspective. We we will actually start looking at God's judgment. What exactly is he doing in the judgment of Jerusalem? But also, it's not just how does God respond, but we're also going to see and examine how God's people should respond back to the Lord in response to the judgment that he sees. So in chapter 2, we're going to see the description of God's judgment of sin, but we're also going to follow it up by a first-hand response of a righteous observer, presumably Jeremiah, and we're going to see up close what the interaction of a righteous follower of God should be, both towards those who are under the judgment, but also towards God. So Lamentations 2, it's going to provide us with three godly responses that we must exhibit as we are surrounded by God's bitter judgment of sin. We're going to see that we must lament the condition of the lost. We must evangelize for the repentance of the lost, and we must lament our own afflictions. Now, before we can see how we must respond to God's bitter judgment of sin, 
we must first see what the judgment is. And the first half of chapter 2 in Lamentations is actually spent describing what God is doing when he is judging. The first section of it is going to be really metaphorical, where he uses word pictures and imagery to help us understand what he is doing. And then the second half of his judgment, he's going to actually be telling us physically, literally, this is what the destruction of Jerusalem looks like. This is literally how God has judged his capital. So let's go ahead and start. If you would open up to Lamentations chapter 2, we're going to start by reading the first section, verses 1 through 5, as we see a metaphorical description of God's judgment. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in her eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, Judah mourning and lamentation. Notice God's disposition. This lament the, the first 10 verses, we're going to actually see the effects of the anger of the Lord against his rebellious people. And notice, too, it's not just Jerusalem that Jeremiah says the anger is being poured out against. Against whom is the Lord unleashing his anger? You see a repeated phrase that is a little bit new to us. It says in verse 1 and verse 4, both of those reference the daughter of Zion. In verse 2 and verse 5, once again, we see the daughter of Judah. This is going to actually be something that is seen and repeated throughout the chapter, but God is painting the picture in Lamentations chapter 2 of a relationship of what should be a father towards his daughter. This is who God's wrath is being unleashed against. But we also see her referenced in verse two, I mean verse one in a couple other ways. She is 
the very splendor of Israel. She is the best of what God's people are. She's also referred to as his footstool. Throughout the, this stanza, we see that God is dealing with Jerusalem, but as part as the, of the greatest part of Judah, or Jacob, the daughter of Judah, the daughter of Jacob, Israel's name was actually changed um, from Jacob to Israel, and we're familiar with this. Um, the daughter represents the people as a whole. God's anger is against Jacob. God's anger is against Israel. And this is, again, repeated in verse 3 and 5. In each verse, in these first five um, verses, God names his chosen people as those he has set his anger against. This is the most scary thing about this lament. That God's disposition towards his people has changed. It has reversed. The reversal that we see is seen that no longer are his people those who are under his protection. No longer are his people those who he is leading. But it starts off right at the beginning. In verse 1, he has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Literally, he has clouded the daughter of Zion. And one commentator said the word to cover with a cloud in related language actually has the notion of making dark or engulfing an entire entity. So you could think of this as the fog bank of the Lord. It has come down and settled around Jerusalem, clouding out any light from entering the city. The very city that was intended to be the light of the world has now had light shut out from coming into it. Not only is the Lord no longer leading his people by a cloud as he did through the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years, but now the cloud is actually cutting her off. If you think of this, what a horrible condition that she is in. He has clouded and cut her off. He has also cast her down from heaven to earth, literally to throw out this idea of dispelling or disposing of. He has cast her from heaven, his presence. He has not remembered his footstool. In case line one was not very clear where he has clouded her out, he follows this up by these two other subsequent images of this rejection. God has rejected the rebellious people of Jerusalem. He has literally forgotten where he, has, where he rests his feet. The remembering that he no longer remembers 
It's the remembering of a covenantal relationship. And we see this echoed in Genesis chapter 8 where the Lord remembers Noah and then subsequently miraculously saves Noah. We also see in Exodus 2 where we're told God remembers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And right after Exodus 2, we see God miraculously saving his people out of Egypt. But God no longer remembers his city, the very city where his temple rests, where he rests his feet on earth. God no longer remembers. God has reversed his relationship. He says, I no longer guide you, but I block you out. I no longer abide with you. I toss you out. I no longer rest among you. I have removed my presence. I have forgotten you. Why would God do all this? Well, God is clear in verse 1. It begins and ends with the same thought. The Lord is angry. Verse 1. <laughs> We've only just started, and we're already looking at how grave a situation that God's disposition is towards his people. But notice that the relationship continues through the reversal um, in the following verses as well. It says in verse 2, "...the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob." In verse 5, he has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. And so just in case there may be any uncertainty as to what God is referring to here, this is not a southern type of idiom that you would say, oh, he's so precious, I could just eat you up. Right? It's, that's not the swallowing up that he's really referring to. Really, this would be more in line with what you might find in Numbers chapter 16. If you're familiar with the rebellion of Korah, we have 250 leaders of Israel being led by Korah who come and basically have a rebellion and look to supplant um, God's priesthood and Moses' leadership. They're looking to, um, while they are uh, in, in the wilderness, they are looking to have a coup. And let me read a couple verses from number 16. Uh, first in verse 20, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among the congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And then a few verses later, And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them, Korah, and the people following him, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with her, their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all of their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed, closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly." The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. 
What a picture of God's wrath against those who had rebelled against him. Another metaphor that we see of God's reversing and changing the relationship is one of tearing down. And so let's take a moment to look at what is being torn down in these first five verses. In verse 2 again, it says, In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. Notice how he starts and ends this section from verse 2 through verse 5 by breaking down and laying down and to ruin the strongholds of Israel. The strongholds, these are the places that you can fight and defend from. These are the places that keep the enemies at bay. These are the last places to fall. And yet, it's the strongholds that the Lord brings down. There's two psalms that actually speak specifically of Jerusalem's strongholds. In Psalm 48, it says, With her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress, speaking of Jerusalem. Also, speaking of Jerusalem in Psalm 122, peace be with you, I'm sorry, please, peace be, uh, please, third time, I think we got this, <laughs> okay, peace be within your walls and security within your towers. But God has reversed his relationship where he is the stronghold, and they have peace and security in their walls and in their towers. He has reversed the relationship in Judah. He was supposed to be the fortress. He was supposed to be their strongholds. But he destroyed the strongholds. Leviticus 26, we see a few verses here that walk through why God was bringing this destruction down. He says in verse 26, or in chapter 26, verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments to do them, then I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. This is how God's relationship with Israel should look. He should be the father who is providing for and protecting his daughter, but no longer is God protecting his daughter. No longer is he protecting the people in the face of their enemies. Rather, notice verse 3, what he has done. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He is withdrawing his protection 
while the enemy stands, they're ready. Also, verse 3, he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. God has reversed his relationship. It continues even on, and we see that God actually has become their enemy. Notice in verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. In this metaphor, we must understand that not only does God just remove his hand of protection, but he also has set his hand against her as a foe. He has set the sights of attack against his daughter, Zion. You could think she is in the divine sniper's crosshairs. His sights are set on her. The daughter has become the enemy. The father has become a foe. As the enemy of Yahweh, God, he cast her out. He cast her down. He swallowed her up, broke down her strongholds, brought her down, cut her down. He withdrew from her. He consumed like a flame. He targeted as an enemy. He set against her. He killed her delight. He poured out fury. He became an enemy. He swallowed up. He multiplied her mourning and laments. So let me pause here and let's just praise and thank God for the gift we have of poetic imagery. What vivid understanding we have. What a clear image that he paints through the words of Jeremiah. He teaches through these poetic devices God's clear disposition to Jerusalem and that the disposition has reversed. Israel is now his enemy. He is devoted to her destruction. This is one of the wonderful things that comes out of poetry being a part of what God has given us within his word. We are completely clear and have complete certainty as to what God is teaching through these images that he paints. But then he transitions away from the poetry and the metaphorical description of God's disposition. And Jeremiah moves to a literal or a physical description. Literally, what is God's bitter judgment of sin looking like in the street? This is what the video of the embedded reporter, as he's shooting the video and putting on the nightly news, this is what that video would be um, 
would be of. So let's go ahead and look down at the next section, verses 6 through 10 in Lamentations 2, and we will see the physical description of God's judgment. Verse 6, he has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the festival. The Lord himself determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders and the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown the dust on their heads, and they put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. As we look at the physical destruction of Jerusalem, we actually are going to see the same message that we saw in verses 1 through 5. God has reversed his relationship with Jerusalem. In the physical description, we see that God destroys the physical structures of Israel's worship of God. So starting off, when we look at verse 6, I'll first want to um, paint a picture of one of the things that he starts describing here. In Texas, think of the hottest part of the summer. In the hottest part of the day, when you see manual labors, think of a roofing crew as you're going by. What are these roofers doing during this two o'clock period in the afternoon? They're generally not on top of the roof continuing to work. But you see these exhausted men that are underneath the shade of a tree, sitting, resting, trying to recover a little bit, um, take some food and drink. What about laborers if they're in the open field? What would they do? They don't have a tree to hide underneath from the, the rays of the suns. So what would you do? You might put together a covering or put up a tarp make some type of shelter to protect you from the intense heat of the sun. If you were to put up a shelter like this, you know, it might just be something very much thrown together, a shack at best, but it's not designed to withstand any type of assault. It's merely a temporary hovel to protect yourself from the intense rays of the sun. Well, this is actually one of the things that in Isaiah chapter 1, this is something that is referenced where there is a booth that is set up in a vineyard or a cucumber field. Okay, So as we start looking in verse 6, we're going to see reference to a booth. And I want you to picture this same type of temporary, very 
haphazardly put together shelter. Its sole purpose is to protect from the sun. Now in verse 6, God calls his temple a booth, one of these shelters, the same booth that was in the vineyard and the cucumber field. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. God destroys and lays in ruins his temple as easily as he would a temporary structure set up to protect people from the sun. He lays in ruins this meeting place. The meeting place isn't magnificent. It's hastily erected. It's not intended to survive until even the next harvest. God ruins his meeting place. It's with the same level of effort that it takes to knock down tomato plants or step on flowers and ruin the garden. God ruins his temple. Verse 7 continues this. The Lord has scorned his altar. He has disowned his sanctuary. Both of these verses, they highlight the fact that God has reversed the religious structure that Israel identified herself with. They no longer have access to his physical dwelling in their midst. They no longer have their offerings to give on the altar. Notice the contempt that God now has for these structures of worship. He scorned, literally, is to reject or repel, to cast away. He disowned. It's a denouncing of repudiating. God's structures of the altar and the sanctuary and the temple, or God's destruction of the altar and sanctuary and the temple, is the culmination of what he has already been warning them about. The sacrificial system that God gave Israel is not for the benefit of God. I encourage you to take some time this week. If you want to jot down Psalm 50, you can read Psalm 50 and see what is God's view of the sacrifices of Israel. Even while Israel was continually giving the sacrifices um, to God, how did he view those? Just as God forgot his footstool in verse 1, we see, though, that God has also made Israel to forget their festivals and Sabbaths. We see that in verse 6. The Lord made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. Not only has God removed the physical structures of Jerusalem's worship, but he's also removed the ritual, the activities of the worship of God. These recurring events that would happen throughout the year to point to God. The festivals and Sabbaths, they were continual recurring reminders to the people of God's relationship with him. God removed these from her memory. 
Instead of Israel remembering and participating in festivals, worshiping Yahweh, we actually see another reversal. And speaking of the enemies in verse 7, it says, They raise a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the festival. So you hear in the house of the Lord shouting and celebration that should sound like a festival, but it's not. It's actually the pillaging and the destruction of the enemies. Not only has he rejected and destroyed the physical structures of their worship, like we just saw, but he also destroyed the physical structures of their security. Remember what we said in verse 3, where he has withdrawn from them the right hand in the face of the enemy? Now let's see how this actually happened. How was his right hand removed from them? His hand of protection. Well, first we see God remove his hand of protection by removing Jerusalem's walls of protection. In verse 7, he has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. God also removed his hand of protection by removing Jerusalem's gates. In verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. We have an image where the gates have been pulled down and so much has, traffic has traveled over that the gates literally are down into the ground now. The gates of protection are gone. God removed his hand of protection by removing Jerusalem's spiritual protection. In verse 9, the law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Then we also see the social and the political protection, those who were the leaders. Their king and princes are among the nations. They are gone. Jerusalem's protection is gone. The walls, the gates, the prophetic words, the social, the political leadership. The result is that the survivor, the survivors of Jerusalem are broken and abandoned and alone. In verse 10, the result is that the remaining elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their head. The remaining young men and women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. God's bitter judgment of sin has come. He has reversed his relationship with his people. His daughter has become his enemy. I'm going to skip a second <laughs> section. <laughs> so the time is quickly coming. Let us not think that God has changed his mind. Let us not think, though, that God has decided that he has done it incorrectly with Jerusalem. 
In fact, God is actually being faithful to the words that he had previously pronounced to these very people. And you saw it all the way back to the very beginning before they went into the promised land. In Deuteronomy um, chapter 29, God says, when you disobey, you will be broken. You will be sent into other lands. But the next chapter in chapter 30, it's so that I will circumcise your heart and bring you back and restore you. So at this point, just to ward off a possible misconception, don't think that God's reversal is going back on a promise that he had made. Rather, what he is doing is being faithful to fulfill the promises that he has already made. So we have now reached the midpoint of Lamentations chapter 2, not the midpoint of the Sunday school hour. (laughs) So we're a little bit past that. So we're going to now ask the question, how do we respond when we see the destruction of the Lord around us like Jeremiah? And this is the part where we're really going to get into three godly responses that we must have when we are surrounded by God's bitter judgment of sin. The first response that we must have, we see very clearly with Jeremiah, and this is that we must lament the condition of the lost. So in Lamentations chapter 2, let's start in verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the street. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the street, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen you, have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her up. Ah, this is the day that we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalt your mighty foes. So we all are probably familiar with the unofficial title of the prophet Jeremiah. He was known as what? Yes, the weeping prophet, the weeping prophet. And we see see this throughout Jeremiah, and true to form in verse 11, 
we see Jeremiah respond in according to his character that he has shown throughout his whole ministry. In verse 11, notice the anguish that Jeremiah feels toward those under God's judgment. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my, progression, of, of my people. Notice this progression. The eyes are spent weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground. We have this downward spiral of his anguish. But notice the extent to where each of these descriptors go. It says, how much crying was there? My eyes are spent. There is nothing left in them. How grieved is he? My stomach churns. I'm grieved to the point of nausea. How much nausea? My bile is poured out to the point of vomiting. My bile is poured out to the ground. And literally, many of you may have a different word instead of bile, but literally it's the liver or the heart. One translator put it, the inward parts. And what this is saying is my insides have become my outsides. Picture a time in your own life where your insides were becoming your outsides. Was it a time of being sickened beyond belief where all you had sent and all you had was sent into the bucket and yet the heaving kept coming? Was it a time of incredible trauma or family loss where someone reached into your abdomen and just grabbed a hold and pulled? Was it a time where you lost an unbelieving parent or child or a friend? Why has Jeremiah's insides become his outsides? Jeremiah is so sickened by the destruction that he is literally sickened. His stomach churns. He has vomited so much that his bile pours on the ground due to the destruction of the daughter of my people. Verse 10, the daughter of Zion. He is sickened because of the infants, the babies, why are infants and babies fainting in the street? Because the parents are destroyed. The destruction was to such an extent that there's no one left to take care of them. Imagine the sound that he is hearing. The scene that he is picturing. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? They faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. It starts at a very heartbreaking scene where a child cries for food that the mother cannot provide. But then it 
moves to an unimaginably heartbreaking scene where infants and children are dying in the streets, dying even on the corpses of their mothers lying on the ground. Just imagine, how does a wounded man faint in the street? Slowly, slower, lower, and down, then out. These infants, they lose their lives upon their mother's bosoms. Can, in painting this picture, can this happen at Calvary? I would say no. If you were to imagine the worst scenario where the gunman comes in, and if my wife and I fall to a gunman, what happens to my kids? You know, Heidi May snatches up my one-year-old Haddon and shelters him, or Hudson, <laughs> shelters them, Right? We have Wayne is going to grab Ree and protect her. I hope actually uh, Stuart or maybe Eric gives Brody a gun because he's the best shot in our family. Tell him to go get the guy. But the idea of children languishing and dying, that does not happen. It cannot happen unless there is no one else left to protect and care for these children. Jeremiah laments, laments the condition of those under God's bitter judgment of sin. Now, the, uh, I'm going to condense about 20 minutes into five here. So hold on. When you look at the heart of Jeremiah when he is lamenting the condition of the lost. We need to realize ourselves that the condition of the lost around us is exactly the same, not in a literal sense as though they are dying in the streets, but they are under the judgment of and the wrath of God. And this is something that Dan has been talking about as we've been looking through Romans chapter 1. We have a couple of excellent uh, messages describing that currently the wrath of God is being revealed currently against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress truth, the truth by their unrighteousness. We must remember that those that are around us currently under the wrath of God's judgment. We must lament for the condition of the lost. But notice, though, we don't stay in this state of lament, and neither does Jeremiah. In, in verse 18, I want to look over here, where Jeremiah, we see a second response that he has that we must also have, that if you truly lament the lost, if you have the heart that you find in a Paul Washer or a John Piper that grieves over the lost, then you must evangelize for their repentance. See that in verse 18, um, we actually see a turning of Jeremiah's um, heart. He says, their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall, 
of the daughter of Zion. Jeremiah is calling out, honestly, in excitement to the walls that have been destroyed. Why is he excited? It's because he is recognizing that there is a repentance that is starting in the people. He says, their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. This is a good thing, their repentance. So he encourages it then. He encourages further repentance. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. This is a time where Jeremiah is being able to say, Keep doing the, the mourning that you are doing. Those who are repenting, repent. And then he turns around and cries directly in verse 19. He cries out to the people who are under the judgment. And he says, there's commands that are given here. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. What are they to do when they arise and cry out? Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Here we see Jeremiah see the first glimpse of repentance and it excites him and it turns, it turns into a call of repentance. And this is the same call of repentance that we are to have. We're, jot this one down, 2 Corinthians 5 starting verse 16, and you can read through the end of the chapter. But this culminates where Jeremiah, or where Paul says, therefore, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, a heart that is broken over the lost and their condition must be a heart that calls the broken and lost to repentance. And this is what we see happen in Jeremiah's um, example. And then finally, we're going to look at the third point in the last few verses where we learn that we must lament even our own affliction. In verses 20 through 22, we see Jeremiah pour out and cry ultimately the way this, verse, this, this chapter ends. He says, you summoned as if to a day of a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is how Jeremiah ends this lament. After calling the people to repent themselves, he pours out his own grief before the Lord. While we are not under the wrath of God, Christ has become our curse for us. We are groaning under the fall. Romans 8, verse 19 through 23 talks about that. How all creation is growing. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3. The day will come where 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4, until that time comes, we too can follow the example of Jeremiah, where we too can lament for our afflictions. But brothers and sisters, as we currently are firsthand witnesses of God's bitter judgment of sin against the ungodly, we must respond in God-honoring and genuine ways. The three responses we see exhibited by Jeremiah that we too must exhibit is that we must lament for the condition of the lost. We must evangelize for the repentance of the lost. And we must lament for our own affliction. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I pray that you would Move the needles of the emotion in our hearts. I pray that we would weep for the lost. I pray that it would turn into an evangelism and a calling to repent. Father, may you change us and conform us to the image of your Son. Amen.